Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. All right, so we're here with another episode of Dane's Platform, and I'm here with Noah Kennedy-White, who's fresh off of a, maybe not a big PR, but a moderately sized PR. Big of, for uh, the last couple seasons. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it was like a, what, a, a meter PR, right? Just, yeah, like 98 centimeters, I think, exactly. <laughs> so. And that was uh, two weeks, or two days in a row you hit that, too. Pretty well. much, yeah. It was 58.69 the first day and 58.54 the second day. So I think that's pretty exciting because I do think, um, especially because the second day, I know I guess it was pretty warm that second day, wasn't it? It was nice, yeah. It was nice weather-wise. I think I I still swear that once it starts to warm up more regularly around here, where it's not fifty and dreary, um, dude, I think everybody's just going to be training a little bit snappier and a little bit better. So I'm pretty excited to see one where you end up at the end of the season, but also where you know. Rachel, Payton, Luke, Sammy, everybody sort of finishes up once it, once this weather clears and we actually have a little bit of sun. So I'm pretty excited and uh, congratulations on that. What was it? Two years? Yeah, just just shy of two years. It's not so. nearly as long as my was. <laughs> no, it it definitely doesn't come close to the length that some people go to. But I think it was. But long two years enough. is still horrible. It was long enough for me to yeah. not want to do it again. Yeah, so. I I think. I th- I think if you go more than I would say two years, I think it, and you don't at least you don't come close. I think it's yeah. That was the helpful thing is like I had at least one throw in each of those seasons where I came close. Yeah. So like yeah, last year I came within like fifty centimeters, I think of it. That's not bad. But it was just like on one meet, and then it didn't really matter that much. So it's yeah. kind of disappointing. But other than that. Um, yeah, it was it wasn't that easy, but made it through. I think I went I'm trying to think how long it was. It might have been eight years or nine years. But to be fair, I had a uh, I had three years in college. Then Doctor B, I, I got close to PRing, but I didn't. I hurt my hand, and then I took off for four years, and then I came back. I trained myself, and that's my PR. There you go. It's because you're the best coach. I'm in such the world. a good coach. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have. Some questions uh, regarding training, like just, you know, regular strength training, base general questions, I guess. And then we have uh, some throwing-related questions, too. And, and I'll try and answer these in the light of, like, a strength athlete type, you know, thrower slash Olympic weightlifter realm. Because uh, it can be a little bit different as far as... Uh, compared to a more aerobic activity. But I'll, I'll try and answer them and, and specify uh, within the answer who this would be regarding to. But I, I do like discussing this stuff because I, I think a lot of these questions can be just simple topics that a lot of people think about but never really find like a good solid answer for. So Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so the first one is definitely very specific to uh, lifting and throwing as very technical sports. So time to adaptation. Um, if I'm working on something technical in my movement, uh, how long do you think it'll take for me to really have that become subconscious and, and uh, effective in my movement? Yeah, that's a tough one because I think that there's a lot of factors that go into play. Um, I think in weightlifting, it can be done a little bit quicker because you can do uh, variation movements that are very specific to individuals' problems, and you can you know train those those areas. So let, let's just use for me um, as a coach, I like to see my weightlifters to clear their knees out of the path of the bar. So their knees either need to go back or out. So a short legger weightlifter, the knees will tend to go out long legger. The, t the knees will tend to go straight back. And I, you know, if I see an athlete that struggles to hit that position where the knees are clearing out of the way, um, it might take a while if I just keep cueing them like knees back, knees back, knees back. But in weightlifting, you know, and this is a very pivotal point of their technique. In weightlifting, you can teach it by making them do pauses below the knee and force them into that position where those knees are back and then they have an isometric hold there. So their back responds really well to isometric uh, tension. And then they learn how to use their hamstrings from the position where the knees are back and, and their chest is over the bar. So it's easier, I believe, in weightlifting to see a, a little bit quicker of a, of a transfer of that technical movement into, you know, into their full competitive lift. So the technical adaptation may be, you know, two to four weeks for a really high-end athlete, and then for a, a decent athlete, it might be four to six weeks. And I think that that's there's got to be like two two spectrums that you factor in where you have how athletic is the individual. You know, how quickly do they make adaptations in their normal training? So it's like you give them a training program. How rapidly do they increase with their strength? How rapidly do they improve, you know, overall? Because that's going to help you recognize how long it takes for an, a technical adaptation to, to occur. Now, if we go to throwing, the load is a lot less. So there's a little bit less awareness. So the athletic capability of an individual will have a huge impact on how long that adaptation phase will be uh, regarding technique. And, and then you go into, um, you know, you, there's certain areas where your body has more neurological endings. So like, it's a little bit harder to control your legs as far as making technical changes, but it's a little easier to, to control your upper body. I always like to say like the upper body is more intelligent than the legs. Um, so, you know, you might have a, a technical issue with the upper body that you could fix a little bit quicker and it's not as, you know, maybe it's a secondary problem. It's not a primary problem. So that's where you have to factor in, like in the throwing world, it sort of differentiates between the athletic ability of the athlete, but then what is the significance of this technical change? You know, is it a big technical change or is it a small, you know, secondary technical change? And then is it with the upper body or lower body? Uh, now, with that being said, you have somebody who I'll use Peyton as an example right now because she's trying to work on keeping her left heel up out of the back of the circle as she rotates around it, getting into the middle. And that's a little bit easier because her feet, your feet are a little bit more, they, they can generate a little bit better proprioception. So that's something that can be fixed within, you know, a week to two weeks. So 
I, I know this is a long answer, but it, it's it really becomes dependent upon what is the movement, you know, how is it a primary or secondary movement, how athletic is the individual, um, and, and and all that has to come into play when when deciding, you know, do we want to make this technical change before the season of when when the athlete has to peak or not? You know, so right. there's there's a lot of factors that that have to come into play and have to be measured. And and for me as a coach right now, I'm at that point where with some of you guys, I'm like, okay, like I'm getting close to the time frame where it's like, okay, now I'm not going to really worry about uh, any drastic technical changes. I'm just going to worry about it becoming automatic, you know. Mm, and yeah. So. And, and then we could get into a little bit with Dr. B's uh, philosophy where he sees, you know, different phases of adaptation where you have an individual that might adapt really quickly in that first week and then they sort of drop off and then it takes another three or four weeks for it to come back. Um, and then you got, you know, he, he sort of graphs out different charts of adaptation. That's specifically based off of training stimulus, but I do believe that that does have some carryover to technique as well. Mm, okay. Well, to sort of kind of piggyback off of that question, when you're talking about technical changes, is there, a, so let, let's take this point in the season, for example. So we're probably about a month away from most people's, or a little less than a month away from most people's conference championships in college. Um, Haley's going to Pan Am soon. So when you're approaching that sort of um, quasi postseason, getting into the early postseason, how many cues are you looking at in terms of technical changes? Do you want it to be just one, or is it going to be a handful? I would say like one primary and two secondary changes or maybe two primary, but typically one main change and then um, one or two secondary depending on the person and how they handle like different feeling. Um, but even with that, you know, leading into a conference championship, if you're four weeks out, it's mainly going to be like, you know, we, we might cue on this in training, but at the end of the day in training at least two or three times a week, I want to sit there and be like, all right, let's take like six to 10 throws where we're just automatic and you're not, mm -hmm. you're just being cued on like aggressiveness type cues or, or like simple cues that help you throw further, you know? So I would say, and it does, you know, it does depend on the, on the individual because you, you can get throwers and weightlifters that are very, very technically minded and they do really well with two or three cues, but it, it all depends on their personality and their aggressiveness and, and their, if they're a cerebral individual or not. Um, I think that depends, but I would t like typically say one primary and then one or two secondary cues um, just to, to really try and set that up pretty well. Now in regards to like somebody like Haley, um, I would say one main cue for the snatch and then two or three secondary cues in her clean and jerk, and, and she's fine, you know. I think in, in Olympic weightlifting, you can get away with variations, sort of teaching what you want them to feel. And then you just ride off of those variations um, on their competitive days. So the way I set it up, on the competitive days, I might cue her to try and feel what she feels off of her variations. Um, but that's still going to be a secondary cue. Okay. All right. So it, it sounds like it just is sort of a equation that takes into account how well you know your athletes and how well the athletes know themselves and their movements. Yeah. And it all, dude, it ultimately comes back to that. And this is where I got to give you credit is that I think that you've made like drastic technical changes over the last nine months. And I think that you've 
for the most part done a good job of recognizing that like it's all like a step-by-step process to get to looking like you know Virgilius Electna or, right. or somebody like that or Robert Harding and it takes time and, and each cue is going to build upon that movement to the next cue and the next technical change and I think that that's ultimately what everybody's got to think about is what is the, the model and if the athlete sees a model and understands what the model is you know I, I do think you guys know for the most part I'm going to want you to throw like Alekna or Harding, right. you know, or, you know, if, if, if it's, you know, Rachel or Peyton, they know for the most part, I'm going to want them to throw like Ryan Krauser, you know, those are the, the technical models with a couple other or Hoffa or um, even Justin mixed in the, in the mix there. So it's like, as long as everybody understands what that technical model is, and it, and if we talk about Olympic weightlifting, you know, Haley knows what the model is, and, we, and she knows what the goals are, and she knows what the goals are for her movement, and that's ultimately the, the most important factor is that you're both on the same page as to what the end goal is going to be, too. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is you're moving into championships and wanting to compete well. Um, everyone starts worrying about recovery. Uh, in my mind, I sort of split recovery into active and passive recovery, active being stuff like jogging, lightlifting, swimming, and passive being more stretching, foam rolling. Um, so in your mind, when do you want your athletes to do that and how do you prefer them to do it? Yeah, that's a tough one because I, <clears throat> I might actually even think like yoga and like, let's just use a, a generic ROMWAD. So like range of motion, mobility, um, you know, workout, I might actually put that into an active mm -hmm. day. It definitely can be. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think especially as long uh, one with yoga, I wouldn't have them do Bikram, uh, anywhere during their, their competitive peak. Um, I, I wouldn't want any active recovery at this point at all. Okay. Like not at all. Because even the training shouldn't be hypertrophic where they need to flush out, like, a lot of lactic acid. You're going to be sore, but you're not going to be, like, sort of the touch. Right. Um, you know, early in the week, I would like a little bit more of a mobility warm-up or yoga warm-up. Um, towards the end of the week, like, 10 to 15 minutes of yoga or mobility where they're visualizing or meditating while they're doing the movements. Uh, let's say they compete on a Saturday, I would want Thursday night and Friday night to be like five to 15 minutes of yoga or mobility where they're just, uh, you know, probably 15 minutes of like stretching, active stretching, and then they're, they're meditating a little bit. And I think that that's the best way for true recovery mentally. And then they can do after that meditation, they might channel in some visualization right afterwards to really, you know, if you can meditate, your brain's in a good state, and then you go right into a visualization. That's the best, you know, meditative visualization um, coupling. There is really, really good for for your mental state heading into a peak, and that could help you feel even further recovered. Uh, but I would say earlier in the week, I, I wouldn't want any. You know, if you get on a bike or an assault bike or a rower for five to ten minutes, I don't think it's that bad. But what we got to think about is like when you're setting up a competitive peak, so like right now you're in like a competitive peak prep. So that's right. different. If you're in a competitive peak program, I really, I really would want to see like a lot of accessory movements come out of the program after that first week. 
a lot of a lot of that you know extra walking needs to be taken out uh nutrition's got to be on point you know tons and tons of protein good meditation um visualization and just understanding that any little extra uh, activity could have a slight delay on on your recovery and that could have a slight negative impact on your your peak mm -hmm. so during that championship phase like that three to four weeks out i wouldn't want any active recovery unless it's five to ten minutes on a rower or a bike or something but then you know i do i do i would want that mobility work or uh or yoga work or visual visualization and, and and meditation to sort of be factored in there to try and um almost feel because what, what ends up happening is if, if if you're doing yoga or you're doing mobility work you start to feel better because you, you're loosening up and you're hitting these deep stretches and then you go into this visualization phase of training where you're like visualizing feeling this deep stretch that you just felt from the yoga you, you're visualizing it in the circle or in the in weightlifting and that can actually have a, a strong neurological imprint which will then carry over to maybe that next day of competition. Mm -hmm. So that's where that can be a, a really unique tool that nobody fucking uses, but, <laughs> but everybody should. Be. Right. So you know, I, I'll, I'll use Jake for an example right now. This kid fucking tells me he wants to be an Olympic champion, but we have yoga and he's fucking six weeks out from fucking senior nationals and he doesn't go to yoga. You know, the fucking best in the world are doing yoga all the time, but right. he's too good for it, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess it seems like your approach to recovery kind of mirrors almost a year-long plan. So if yeah. you're in, like, in the summer-fall accumulation training, then you need to flush it all out, get into the active zone. But as you start to peel away some of the layers of training, make it simpler um, and less impactful upon the body, then switch more to the passive side of, yeah. of recovery. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, I actually think for someone like you, I uh, actually do think that doing like a rower for five minutes to warm up because you're so tight in your hips might actually help you. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> but I might be too good for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so get, moving into the weight room for throwers, um, in terms of pre-meet, so like the day before meet, um, what do you your... get this shirt, by the way? Dude, I got this at Cabela's for like 20 bucks. It's That's awesome. the most ridiculous. It's, I love it. It's amazing. Oh <laughs> it's so awesome. Uh, my great apparel aside, um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, sort of activation lift? Um, I know uh, Adam Nelson talks a lot about that. Mustafa yeah. talks a lot about that. Um, something light, snappy, like, I don't know, 70 kilo clean and jerks. Are you saying like the day before or the, the day, day before? The day before. Okay. In my in my mind, because if if it's that day, I I've never been interested in doing anything extra. Um, Dude, I so. like it. I, I do like it. Here's my here's my, I I. Okay, so like there's a couple schools of thought with peaking, and I tend to peak my lifters really really well, and I tend to peak my throwers fairly well, like consistently. I'm I would say I have a pretty good percentage of like good you know, competition, uh, peaks, uh, for all my throwers and all my weightlifters, but there's still some things that I think about that I could change. And I see so there's like, you know, there's like the classic, like build up, build up, taper back and, and, and hit a big peak. I do like taper back. And then you do like the day before two days out, you do like power snatches, fast benches, and maybe some quarter squat and jumps with like 135 pounds for like three doubles or something. Mm -hmm. And then you throw two days later or the next day. And I have no problem with that. Um, 
there's another school thought that's sort of like, and this is in weightlifting and in throwing, where there's like two weeks or three weeks out from a big peak. And this is, let's say, uh, specifically for weightlifting. This is similar to like the Colombian, the Colombian model would be like three weeks out, you taper back. Then two weeks out, you're tapering back pretty hard. Then a week out, like, like six, five days out, five to six days out, you might take like 95 to hundred percent of your max okay. yeah. on like Sunday and you're going to compete on Saturday. And then Monday you're going, uh, you're going to go for a max on, on, on Monday. And then on Tuesday, you're going to do, you're going to do like 85 to 90% of your max and then Wednesday, you're off. Thursday, you train, whatever. Friday, you're off. And then Saturday, you compete, something like that. So there's sort of like those two schools. Dockers and the Jamaicans have that similar peak model of the Colombians as far as weightlifting is concerned. Well, they they're, they will back off like three weeks out, two weeks out. But then like maybe 10 to 14 days within that big comp, you know, they might be hitting like, hundred percent on a bench press. Right. But keeping that volume really, really, really low. Yeah. Right. So like, I'm interested in playing around with that because I do think, uh, certain athletes and, and I, I would play around with it with, with specific athletes. Cause I, I know some of my weightlifters and I do know some of the throwers would like get, get destroyed if we went heavy, like three days before a big meet or four days before a big meet. But I also know some of them would do really well with that. Right. Um, as long as the volume is very, very low. So, um, Going back to that, what was the question? It was the taper. Uh, yeah, sort of just like the activation pre-meet. The, the activation pre-meet, like I would say, as far as like a true taper where you back off like two weeks out pretty hard, and then like that that day before, two days out, you do like a a, a strong activation lift. I dude, I think that's good. Mm-hmm. I like that, you know, because you, if nothing else, if it's if. Nothing else. You're moving shit fast, and you feel like an animal. You right. Know? You start to feel like, like you could rip the steering wheel off of a off of a car, off of a steering column when right. you're driving. Like you start to feel really, really good. So I, I think it's a very positive thing. Okay. All right. Um. So more almost peaking type of stuff, or just in season considerations. Um. Taking competition time off. So mid season, if you took a weekend off. Yeah. Um. To maybe I don't know if you were. Just recycling training. up training yeah. through or increasing your th- practice throws or something like that. What are your thoughts on, on I that? think that's good. I think I think some some people I think some people can compete all the time and they're fine. Like they could compete every weekend and they're not gonna it's not gonna like completely destroy them. I do think some athletes uh they get beat up from competing. They back off too much during the middle of the week because they think they have a meet coming up and then they do that three or four weeks in a row, and now all of a sudden you've lost a week and a half of training, and that has a negative impact on your peak. So I think that it's okay if you compete every weekend as long as you understand that like your your priority is your training. Right. You know? But if you don't understand that, then you should be taking weeks off because I think I do think that if you sat there and said, you know, let's use you, Noah, you guys train hard and you compete three or four weekends in a row, and then we know and, you know, first weekend in May, we're going to UVA. Well, now I do want you to throw at Lehigh, but let's say that week of the Lehigh meet, you're just like, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to, I just want to keep training and then back off for, for UVA. I don't, I think that's a good idea. Okay. You know, or let's say you're going to Tucson. 
UVA, you compete, then you take two weeks off, you train really hard that week after UVA, and then you have that week leading into Tucson. Well, then there you got that week yeah. off and, you, and you're focused on training. I think that especially if you're in like a technical funk and you're not really smashing your throws, I think having that week off can help you, one, regroup competitively because you're not going to be so down on yourself for not hitting a PR or whatever. And two, you have more time in training to work on the technical errors right. that are occurring yeah. in the circle. And I think especially with such a long season as track is, yeah. like, are you going to compete every weekend from the last weekend in March to the last weekend in June? Yeah. Like, that's a really, really long time to compete every weekend. Yeah, and if you look back to December, if you're going December to to June, you're really only going to have, like, six or seven weekends off. And right. That's, that's not a lot. Yeah. And uh, at least from my perspective, so before this weekend where I PR'd, or this past weekend where I PR, the weekend before that we were supposed to go to William and Mary and didn't. Yeah. And we decided like midweek that we weren't going to go because of the weather. And from that point, I was like, okay, this like sets everything up really well because I could take the rest of this week really, really slowly in training, yeah. just focus on every technical thing that we're working on, and then next week I can put my focus into like meat intensity throws and yeah. applying all that. So it kind of gave me that extra time to to it's solidify those technical changes. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely think it's a something worthwhile. Um. So probably last question. Okay. Um, in terms of lifting for throwers, when you're doing the, the Olympic lifts and programming the Olympic lifts, what are your thoughts on power lifts versus full lifts for okay. throwers? Okay, so power lifts regarding, meaning like catching in a power, yeah. not like power lifting. Yeah, 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 sorry. Um, I, I think snatches should be done most of the time at full depth because throwers are so internally rotated that one that they have the shoulder structure and shoulder strength to handle that overhead two they're typically pretty tight through their hips and lower back and thoracic spine i just think it's like an extra mobility tool um i also just like the speed of working on on be, being reactive and getting under the bar uh now with that being said i i'll have my athletes peak with power movements or peak off of like partial powers where they go off of a box or two boxes so it's a shorter range of motion and they're just ripping and catching fast um you know in a peak plan i power cleans i i don't mind i think they're good i think again i like peaking power with power cleans off of a box off of two boxes for that shorter range of motion um i think in season Doing full cleans can really beat throwers up a bit, um, especially if they have poor mobility in their sh in their shoulders, like you. Yeah. <laughs> so I do think it can have a negative impact if they're constantly going in the hole. But I also think that it's that's just from like the load. So you get these you know, like somebody like Sam who's going to be catching 180 down in the hole pretty consistently, and that's going to beat him up pretty bad um, as far as like absorbing that that force. And then having to concentrically, you know, stand up and grind it out. That's why I just don't clean that much. Yeah. I don't want to take yeah. on that sort of load. Yeah, know? exactly. And I, I think that that can, I think like those powers can have a positive impact. And the thing is, if we're working at powers like with Sam at 170, like he hit yesterday, and then we back off, or it pushed him under a little bit, but then we back off and we go down to powers at 135 to 140, he's going to feel really, really strong and really explosive at, that, at those weights. And I think... I think that the full lifts outside of like that 
competitive prep and the competitive peak programs, I think they do have a really good place. And I think that, that throwers do need to do more full Olympic lifts. Um, but, you know, once it comes down to that last eight to 12 weeks of a season, I don't think it's necessary. I still think that snatches, though, can be done almost the entire season going into full depth because of, of how fast they are. The load isn't that heavy and it's still going to help the, the athlete feel stable overhead, you know, or stable in their trunk and in their hips and in their shoulders. It, it can, it can really help them just feel a little bit better, especially if they're mobile throughout their ankles and all that. So I, I, I would say definitely powers are fine. I don't think that they're bad. Give me, give me one more. Um, okay. Let me think. <clears throat> okay so throwers um ab work what are your thoughts what are what are your favorite extra mo- movements for ab work for throwers and why is it important okay i have a lot um i know yeah. <laughs> i mean i i in the fall i like pairing uh like front squats and stuff with with direct ab work that's going to be linear so like um, ab wheel. Uh, I like open chain ab work. So like hanging leg raises, knee raises, um, you know, isometric work like hollow body, hollow body rocks are good. Um, but then as, as we sort of like really get into shape and start to prepare for the season, I like to do a lot of side med ball throws. And I think that's the biggest failure of my gym here is that we don't have a block wall because I love side med ball throws for distance. I like side med ball throws in a short range for speed and reactiveness. Um, that getting that stretch reflex, learning how to throw on a flatter plane. Um, I like side discus throws where you're throwing really, really flat side discus, you know, like a 3K into yeah. a net or into a wall. Um, I like that as well. I like for hammer throwers, plate twists. I like really heavy hammer winds. Um, but I, I think anything rotational, I, I, you know, for every two sets that you do on your dominant side, you should probably get one, one, at least one set in onto your non-dominant side. But I do like, you know, rotational abs that have a little bit of speed and acceleration, like the side discus or the side med ball throws. Those are my favorite. And I think that, when you start peaking, if you if you have a block wall and you're just ripping, you know, five or six kilo med balls into a block wall and you're just smashing it and you're catching it and you feel that big stretch across your gut you, and you rotate deep and you smash it again into the wall, you, you can start to feel that transfer of strength from the hips into the implement. And then you can start to feel that when you're leading into your peak as well. So I, I really like, you know, those, those coupled with, um, for shot putters, I actually really like uh, flat side discus throws. But the problem is, is like, I, if I would give those to you guys, you, you guys wouldn't do them. <laughs> you'd, you'd do like one or two sets and be like, oh, fuck it, I'm good. And then that's the hardest part with them is that they're a pain in the ass. Like, they really are. Yeah and, if, <laughs> yeah, and if you're throwing into like the net, it's okay, but it's still annoying. You got to do like go walk, pick it up. So, um Actually, when I PR'd, I was doing, I would get like 20 of my discs and I didn't care what the weight was. And I would just take side throws as far as I could, really, really flat. And I actually think that that, that really, really helped me with a, with rotating fast at the front. And I still believe that that has a really good carryover. But ultimately, I think my best, my favorite, um, 
you know, transfer training abs for peaking a thrower are going to be side med ball throws, either kneeling or standing into a wall for distance or into a wall for, you know, short range for speed. And then you get that fast reaction yeah. on the catch. So, All right. well, I actually do have one more question for you. Okay. Tom Walsh. <laughs> what an are we, what are we looking at here in terms of his career progression? Do you think there's more in the tank? Do you think we've seen his best? Is he a guy who might threaten the world record at some point in time? Dude, I think what worries me is that he's like he. What is he? Twenty six now. I'm like concerned that he that he hit his peak. Like I, I'm worried that we're gonna look back in two years and be like, okay, he's still throwing twenty two, but he's not throwing twenty two sixty five or whatever it was. Right. Um, but it was like Commonwealth uh, quals and like the, what was it the week before? Yeah, he it was, was crazy. He yeah. was ripping throws. Yeah, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not giving him. Dude, I, he's the best thrower in the world. Um, which he established last year twice. Um, I think he's still the best thrower in the world this year. I think he he could beat everybody. Um, I would like to see him go twenty two ninety to twenty three. I don't know. I, I I think people throw out twenty three and they they don't realize how far that is. And, it's and to take ridiculous. yeah and to add forty centimeters to this guy's PR is a serious amount of work and, and I do think he's smart. I think he trains pretty well. I think he you know he, his right leg is seems to be a little bit more controlled than it used to be. So I like that about his his technique. Uh his finish is incredible. He's grounded. He rotates so strongly. Um you know I, I would like I would love to see him break the world record. I just don't know if it's possible. I, I I will say this: If he doesn't break the world record, and Ryan Krauser doesn't break the world record, I will struggle to believe that anybody could break the world record clean. Like, yeah, you know, because Walsh is wired like a freaking goddamn rabbit. Like, he's so snappy. He, he's he's so snappy, and he's he's so technically sound. For the most part, he's technically sound. I, I think he's he's cleaned up quite a bit, and I think. I would like to see him break the world record just because Randy Barnes is a sauce head. He's dirty and he's you know bad for the sport. Um, he might be a good guy, but he's still dirty. Uh, I'd like to see somebody clean throw twenty three because off tournament he definitely wasn't clean either. Um, but yeah, I, dude, I don't know. It's like one of those things we talked about this like two weeks ago, going to throw at Albright, where it's like. I don't know if it's if it's possible for him to throw twenty two ninety. I don't. Dude, that'd be crazy. Like as crazy as it was to see him throw twenty two sixty. Yeah. Like just comprehending that he could throw twenty two ninety plus. I think like people crazy. forgetting that Krauser threw twenty two sixty at USA's last year. Some people might be. Yeah. Like and that's the thing. Like he was over rotating horribly last year outdoors. So like, dude, he might clean that up. Maybe he gets a little healthier and he starts smashing it. I don't know, but like. I, I'll, I'll say this. For both of them, maybe I'll make this prediction. I don't think Tom Walsh will throw further than 2278. <laughs> okay. All right. You heard it here first. 2278 will be his best. <laughs> All right. But that's not saying I don't want to see him. Yeah. I, I think he's a cool dude. I, I hope he throws further than that, especially because he's not, he's not that tall. He's, you know, he's six foot, six one, six two, whatever. He's not, he's not the, you know, Randy Barnes is like six five. So I would love to see it. I'd love to see him take it down. I think he does. Either he or Krauser, I would say, has the clean world record. I think it would be him. Was what do you throw? Sixty-five, twenty-two, sixty-five. I think something like yeah. that. Yeah. So I would love to see it. I just I struggle to see it happening because it 
23 meters is a really, really freaking far throw. That is, it's crazy. Yeah, so. We'll see. Let's see, Tom. Maybe maybe when he's back in the U.S. and he's training on, on in, in, you know, on the U.S. soil, he's got good food. Not that he's got really good food in New Zealand, but uh, maybe he could find a couple meets locally and it's easy travel. And he's, he's hammers one. Yeah, he just Never kills know. one. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That That's where it would be, like, the perfect setting. Right. So. Yeah. All right. All right, so we'll stay tuned for the next episode of Danny's Platform. Noah, thanks for being on today's show. Yeah. Peace. At this time, we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Danny's Platform. Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earth-Fed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Peace. Peace.